This is theprocess.ink. Episode number three. Today's guest is the lovely TV powerhouse Janet Leahy. TV writer, producer, showrunner, playwright, and poet. Janet's credits include Mad Men, Boston Legal, Gilmore Girls, many more. Janet is currently working on an original half-hour pilot and pitching a one-hour series. I went out to the Pacific Palisades to sit down with Janet. Okay, this is The Process. I'm Tom Benedek, and I'm here with Janet Leahy. You've been in television for a while. You've gone from working on sitcoms, and the last show you worked on was Mad Men. Yes. And you were on Mad Men for the whole run, or for four years? Since, or so? uh, season four. Season four. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. And so how many years was that? They stretched it out, so it was like five years or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I think it was five years, because the last season we split up into two seasons. Briefly, you went to UCLA? Yes. And you studied I film? I was a film major. You decided you wanted to be a... Writer? No, 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 no. I, I didn't think I could write, so I didn't try that much. I wrote some, but I wanted to direct. And then after school, I did a bunch of the jobs that everybody does, PA jobs and those kinds of things, and strange jobs. And then I got a job as a writer's assistant, which was called a secretary at that time, on Newhart, which was the Bob Newhart show in, yeah. in, the, in Vermont. So I was a writer's assistant there, and I... Like everybody else, I just decided to try to write a script. And I wrote a script, and the writers were very enthusiastic, and they told me to write another one. Because I was in the writer's room, I knew that one particular character needed a story, so I developed a story for that character. And then one of the writers, Barton Dean, who's a great comedy writing legend, he went over the outline with me, and I wrote it on spec, and then they bought it. That's fantastic. That's how it happened. It was not a plan to go into writing. It was just something that was there. And at that time, the television business was more of an abstract, except for the people who were in it, in the here and now of it, I think, in terms of what strategies of what people could do. I'm sure there were some people who knew they wanted to do one thing, but in the narratives that I've read about people from that time, it's not like now where there are these roadmaps that are out there and the schools know the roadmaps and everybody's... Yeah, and there weren't so many film schools either. But essentially, now getting those jobs as writer's assistant in the writer's rooms, it's a thing. It's like the classic path. And placing a script on a show and getting on a staff, you just did that and at a time when it was unique. Yeah. And now it's you started a trend. Well, I was part <laughs> of a trend because there were a few of us women who, at that time, the job of secretary was a woman's job. And this is in 85 or so, 84, 85. So secretary, now yeah. we call it writer's assistant. What happened to job. all the secretaries? Some of them, including me, we became writers. Yeah. And then it became clear to people that that was a path to writing. We didn't know that. But it became clear. And then the job title changed and a lot more males came in yeah. to become writer's assistant because it became a source of power or an entree but it wasn't thought of when I was doing that it was supposed to be a dead-end job and the character of Peggy on Mad Men did that kinship yeah (laughs) yes a lot of female writers did because we all started out that way when Matt was writing his pilot on spec he knew many of us who were in that same situation where we had come up from the ranks in that regard I'm not saying he modeled it after us I'm just saying he was aware of it He also did his own research with advertising people, and they told him that's how he worked up the ranks in the advertising world as well. There's a lot of parallels between 
advertising and the television writing business, and we exploited that on Mad Men. And the gamesmanship that they had to strategize in there privately, or just the women just amongst themselves, in order to work in that world. How does that apply today? In terms of television, you in mean? In terms of television. Is television really just egalitarian, or it depends on who the people are you're working with or what the situation is? Or you stay away from the ones where it's not egalitarian. Right. That's kind of a tricky question because it really depends on the show. Every show has its own personality and its own makeup. When I was coming up, there was not that kind of strategizing that Peggy and, say, Joan had to do. There wasn't quite that kind of sort of political intelligence. Occasionally you'd run into a political person on a writing staff who kind of found their way in a very strategic way, but that was kind of unusual, but you would find them. By and large, those people didn't last. They're so busy being political, the writing wasn't quite there, and so they'd have to find another show to be political on. So that would happen. Occasionally, in comedy writing, more or less, it was kind of a two-edged sword. The shows that you were on, that you were on New Heart. Cheers, All is Forgiven, Cosby Show, Roseanne, Grace Under Fire. I did Major Dad and a show called Daddy O and probably a few others. You were spitting out jokes in the writers' rooms and hanging out with <laughs> yes. twelve people and just being a good audience for those people and, and spinning story. Were you a story yes. spinner with the jokes which led you to be a one hour person or well that's interesting. The one hour thing kind of just happened its own separate and I can tell you about that if you want but originally you were in the room and you're pitching jokes and you're pitching story and everybody's doing that and it's just sort of for me it was more of an athletic endeavor because I had to be really sharp and on my game because you were dealing with extremely smart people sharp sharp people and if you didn't have your game on you kind of could get eaten alive that's a double-edged sword I was talking about this kind of complete camaraderie and yet complete competition in the room for jokes. Depending on the show, you'd have a mix of more or less of one or the other. And then the way I transitioned into one hour, I had done comedies for about 18 years, and I was kind of getting tired of them. I was working on a show called Daddy-O as a consultant, and it was a lovely show. It was with Michael Chiklis, lovely man. Showrunners were very lovely, but I got the sense that they didn't think I was very talented. And that will happen to a writer. What? I know. It's happened to every writer I've known, where you'll be really funny and talented on one show, and the next show you go to, the showrunner decides whether you're funny or not, and they're going to either laugh at your stuff or not. So you're just kind of met with blank expressions, or you're not, you're sort of like their eyes are on somebody else, or they feel like it's on with the game of what's going on there? Yes. And how do you go back to work the next day if that's happening? I mean, as a feature writer, it's like, it's hard to fathom going in every day and keeping it going. It's hard, and it was very hard for me, and I wasn't used to that, so it was very, very hard. And I had other writers walking by my office kind of feeling bad for me. It's not like we're doing Shakespeare here. It's sort of at that moment I said, you know what, I think I'm done, I think I quit. That was about 15 years ago, and I decided to start writing one acts like you do when you... quit or whatever. So you just went back to creative writing, so Mm -hmm. to speak, and just said, okay, I'm just going to write things that I can control and that are mine and not for the biz and for a context of corporate media context. Yeah, and then I wrote a one act and it was very well received and it ended up in the laps of the people who did Gilmore Girls. 
And that was Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino. And Amy Sherman Palladino had worked on Roseanne. And Dan Palladino had worked on Roseanne, both at different times. And I had worked with Dan, so he was familiar with my work. And they really liked the one act. So they asked me to come aboard Gilmore Girls, which I really didn't know about too much at the time. It was uh, wow. a little That's a, What a great segue into one hour. Yeah, I so mean, that's how it happened. But it wasn't yeah. on purpose. Again, it was yeah. just, I'm going back to writing what's something meaningful to me. Uh-huh. I'm sure it's the same for you, right? It, and I tell my son this, I try to teach a lot, and I remind the students that no matter what, as a writer, if you're hot or you're cold or whatever, you could always write something to turn your world around, as long as it's from a place of passion and yeah. meaning. And then see what happens. Yeah. So. Right now I'm pursuing opportunities, things that come up that seem interesting to me, but also I'm working on my own stuff that I want to make myself as a DIY script. So it's just like I'm responsible, so I'm trying to figure it out. So it's, yeah. And it's refreshing because, you know, sort of like, okay, it ends here. It's with me and there's no other that it goes to. And that's the way writing should be. Even if we're writing for someone else, it's like you have to feel like there's no other it goes to. So if, if the other is in your head and if you're really working on that, result out there then it's harder it's it's, harder. it's much harder it's yeah. much harder and it's hard to work on somebody else's material you just have an ear for it yeah it's courageous that you've done all that episodic and then you just were able to go out and write a play and just work on your own creative writing and just do that that's fantastic i, I, I think it's necessity though yeah. I, I feel like everybody at some point does that at least once if not five times because at a certain point, you run into some sort of dead end where this isn't working anymore. This particular way I'm writing, this particular time that I'm writing, this particular show, something's not right. And so if you pay attention to that... I can just get into the process and love the process. Of just love writing if I'm engaged in what I'm doing and just really get into it and with the characters and whatever it is. I'm, I'm addressing it and I'm, I'm immersed in it. But I don't know if I'm really hitting the gold scene of I should be doing. Or if I'm like, this is what I should be doing. I've really found it. And I think once in a while you kind of find it. You won't know it until you try, until you go and you just do something and just write something. Yeah, totally feels. It is a strange sort of mind Lewis and Clark thing. One of the regrets, and I think we all have regrets in our writing career, I was so hard on myself when I'd go down a wrong road, a road that wasn't quite fruitful. Yeah. And I wish I hadn't been so hard on myself. Well, you mean hard on yourself, like feeling like, like oh, I, oh, I should have been, I should have done this, and I should have been smarter. And then you start looking at everybody else who's so smart and just getting it right all right. the time. <laughs> or you seems know, to be. Seems to be. But they're or not. you read it in the trades, they got it right, look, yeah. they did that, this is happening. And most of the time it's like, but then you start looking at your own stuff and you just have to go back and get into the zone. There's no other way. Yes, it it's a and zone. It's a letting go. Yeah. And that's yeah, hard. Yeah, letting go is, is super it hard. It is hard. It's really hard. I definitely agree with that. In terms of spinning stories, I'm just going to change gears here. Like, I wanted to ask you about thinking in terms of TV episodes and spinning story and creating characters. Are you writing a pilot? Pitching a one hour and I'm going out with a half hour. I'm doing both. Okay. I've returned to my half-hour roots. And did you write a script for either of them? Or for you... the half-hour, I've written a yeah, half-hour comedy. So do you have like a mission statement or a Bible plan or something? Or that, just I like the text? That, that I have just a script. Just a script. And the other is a pitch with a pitch document that I've 
started to go out with for a one-hour drama. And are you showing a pitch document in advance, or are you just going out and talking and then I'm it's a leave-behind? I'm talking, and I don't do any leave-behinds, and it's probably not a good idea. It's a very tricky thing because I'm introducing a subject matter that's completely fascinating to people. Anybody I talk about it, they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't, had no idea. And it's a story that's very interesting, which I can't talk about right now because I haven't told it yet. But so many people want a book, a short story. So you were talking about going out with a pitch document which you don't leave behind. And it's a subject that people are very interested in. Yes. And that's your one hour. Yes. How many pages is the document? I think it's about ten. Tell me what's in the document. You want to pitch it to me? No. No, I'm not pitching myself. <laughs> Very funny, though. And I'll tell you what's in it, and then I'll tell you what I'm finding out there, because okay. that'll be helpful for people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I pitch the broad idea of the show, and I pitch why it's important. Then I pitch the characters, and then I pitch the tone, and then I pitch kind of some sample stories or where I think the pilot should be. That's generally what I do. And when you say samples, what the pilot should be in sample stories? Sample episode. How elaborate is that in terms of the pilot, like in terms of the story? You know, A story and B stories and C stories? Yeah, and, kind of know, the, just the main story of where I think it's going to go. Or in this case, where I think the season will go. Uh-huh. In this particular case, it's a period piece that's taken place over several years, and I have like large arcs going on for four years, but it just fits that way because of the historical drama that happened during those years. So that's what I do. In another pilot, I wouldn't do that at all. I mm-hmm. wouldn't pitch out the, where I think the arcs of the show are. But I wanted to do that, A, because it's part of what's extraordinary about it, and B, I think it might help sell it. So anything that might help sell it is what I'll do. Okay. And are you pitching to networks or to cable or everybody? It's for cable. Right now, because it's such a large idea, I'm going to producers because I want a producing partner. It's not something I've done before and it's too big. And so in this case, I would do that. In another case, I would go straight to the cable companies. So you know what's going to happen at the end of the season and you sort of can say in the framework for the following seasons would yeah. be something like this? Yeah. Do you want to just write the pilot now or do you want to write the first well, season? Well, we all want do the you... whole season, but yeah. they'll probably just give me a pilot commitment. But what I will say this, what I'm finding out there is that you will have much more success. I could say this, as a seasoned writer, I've been able to sell things I've pitched. And this I'm in the middle of, so I don't know what will happen to this. But they're very, very, very interested in a book, a short story, literally pieces of paper they can hold on to Mm -hmm. that says this is the source material. For some reason, there is such, I don't know if it's fear, competition, or what, but television didn't used to be like that. Mm -hmm. You could go in and you could pitch and you'd sell an idea Mm -hmm. or not sell an idea. And now there's less and less of that and they want it to be based on a book, a short story, web series, something else so that they could say, I have something in my hand. And Uh I'm finding that more and more and I think it's getting harder and harder just to sell a pitch. Really? Yeah. That doesn't have to do with what you're project is about because it's historical that they want something with that or it, you think it it's may just... it may because this is so big they may it would be much easier if there was a book written about it but there hasn't uh-huh. been so that's yeah. a fascinating thing it's original but it's a real thing if it's an original thing then they should be able to grab onto that and say yeah right but it's scary and they have to commit a lot of money and that's hard right now i'm chewing off something that's something i haven't chewed off before i find that exciting and it's a great story to tell and i'm passionate and it comes out that way it's 
it's just harder. But my whole career has been like that, where whatever show I worked on, I, I ran a show called Boston Legal with James Spader and Bill Shatner. And after I ran that show, the networks and studios only wanted me to do law shows. And I said, well, I've done a law show. I'm not interested in a law show. I know I can do a law show. We got lots of awards for it, and that's fine. But I want to do something new because I don't want to do what I just did. That's also very hard for other people to sort of live with. I ran the Cosby show many, many years ago. And after I ran that show, I got a lot of offers to run African-American shows because I knew the black sensibility. And it struck me as odd. I said, well, I really kind of just know how to write a family show, but I bet I can write something else. But they didn't want to take a chance with something else. So I always had to keep breaking through something. You always made a conscious decision after you finished the show or just felt like, I can't do that anymore. I have to move on. Part of yeah. the yearning to leave or the part of the change that you knew was taking place was, I'm going to go into a different terrain of... Yeah, I'm out of, of ideas. Work. First yeah. of all, you're out of ideas. And I don't want to just sort of remix what I just did because yeah. that's not very nice to an audience. That's not presenting them with something. And your job as a writer or producer is to entertain people, not give them some regurgitated thing they've seen before. Because your audience, and I tell the students this, and they have a huge responsibility because the audience are people who work super, super hard and they just want to break. They just want to watch something. And it's either meaningful or fantasy or whatever it is. Your job is to make sure that they're entertained. And if you're just kind of regurgitating things and not creating something new or something meaningful, it's. I'm not saying I achieve that all the time. I'm saying that's the goal. Okay. That's a great way to look at it. It's, it's inspiring. And I think it's, it's an essential. And how does television differ in that way in your mind from features or theater or some other i mean is it the same thing or is it does it have some special dynamic nice relationship with the audience yeah i was gonna say i think there's much more intimacy between you and the audience i think the audience becomes your friends or or you think of them as your friends i definitely write to the audience like they're my friends and when a show gets too big i actually don't even think about the audience i think of like one really smart friend and i'm trying to write a show for that friend and if that That's friend wonderful. likes it then whatever 50 million people will like it it helped me deal with like the cosby show because that was such a massive show it helped me quite a bit with that and cheers uh, those were pretty big hits and so that's a lot of pressure but i think there's total intimacy when i did boston legal i wasn't the biggest fan of law shows because for some reason I felt there'd been too many of them and I liked some of the first ones but then they started to seem like law shows so what I tried to do on that show and, and we accomplished that I think is that we played with the audience's intelligence they know law shows we know law shows so let's goof on what they already know yeah. so let's take their intelligence and play with it well, that's great and so that's what the goal was and then you have a little more interesting show and then you push the boundaries of what the lawyers were doing and what the stories could have been and how much the law was in them and the relationship yeah. of the characters was to the law. That's brilliant. I've never watched the show. I'm sorry. That's <laughs> I'm okay. I'm going to watch all your shows before I come here. <laughs> That'd be hard. I, now it makes me want to watch that show. So I, mean, I know it's kicking around. It's on the Netflix or what else? Somewhere. It's somewhere. on Amazon. It always shows up somewhere. Yeah. That's a reliable, that fact, which is an amazing thing. Speaking to one person, just going and telling a story to one person is really taking the essence of what this is to its roots and really bringing that in writing television with all the trappings around which a hit show and teams of people, teams of writers, telling a story to one person. 
and it has to be meaningful to that person and it has to entertain them and, and move them, do different things for them, but really just nourish them emotionally in some ways. That's a brilliant way to look at it. It's something elemental that people or writers should think about every day when they're writing, I think. It's pretty simple. Yeah. It simplifies everything. Because, I mean, our job is storyteller and historically the storytellers were also kind of healers in a weird yeah. way. So it takes all the nonsense of the business, which can be so crazy deals and this and where do you stand and yeah. are you hot are you not it takes it all away and just makes it very quiet and just tells story how do you spin story i mean it's a really dumb big question i find that some writers they'll talk about a group a family of characters and there's this idea that this family of characters it's not unique to television but it's something which is referred to a lot in television and you're talking about that idea of people bringing this characters into their home and that they have this special relationship with them because of the technology. And I think that's true. They're, now they're carrying them in their pocket or right. they have them on their computer. <laughs> but yes. it's a different thing. And wanting to go back to them, it's family that people have in their minds that they're dealing with. And so in terms of spinning the stories for them and the framework of the show, how do you do that? I mean, if you start with a family of characters, what's yeah. your next step in terms of trying to spin story? That's a huge, it's stupid sh- question. It's, no, it's not stupid. It's, it's huge, though. Basically, you have your characters and you have your character flaws, right? We know that because you want a well-rounded characters. And then you have what are their hopes and dreams? What are they not getting? Because usually they're the same. <laughs> And so what's their struggle? What are they hoping to gain, right, in their journey? And let's say their journey is life or their journey is a job or what have you. So as long as you know all that, you can start playing with that. And then what I've found is once you have your characters, people start bringing in stories from their own lives into the writer's room or stuff they've read, research, and translate it through those characters. What would this story mean for that character? So what if this happened to that person? Right. I'll see if I can do an example. For instance, I had, in Mad Men, I had gone to the emergency room because I had a massive pain in my side, and it turned out to be an ovarian cyst, but I thought it was appendicitis, but it was the worst pain I'd ever had. Mm-hmm. So we needed a way for Joan to bond with Bob, the character on Mad Men named Bob. And, He's um, a guy who, who left the firm and ended up trying to recruit he was a weaselly guy yeah. who was always taking Pete on, and he was the one who caused trouble at Chevy with Pete. But anyways, and he eventually asked Joan to marry him. So we had that happen to Joe. That's a literal thing we took from our lives, and we did that all the time. We do that on every show, and it gets translated through the characters. Now, that doesn't mean we take every single story from our lives. I do a massive, massive amount of research. When I went to do Boston Legal, I had no idea about the law. I'd gotten a couple of tickets in my life, and that's all I knew about the law. And what's your process for doing research? And when you do the research, do you make notes on things that, oh, I could use this? Turn into stories. Like, so what was your process in terms of doing that research? So that particular show, before I started the show, I bought five books on famous attorneys, so I knew what characters from, and I go to the past, even though I'd be writing the present, and then my imagination just takes off. Oh, well, what if he did that, and yet it was this case? And so I combined that research. I just went away for a weekend and bought about five books, and it just started coming. I combined that research with what stories do I want to tell. And to find the stories I want to tell, I often go to what are my worst fears? What am I afraid of in the whole world? 
And so let's write about that and get it out there. So for instance, on Boston Legal, my son was starting to learn to drive. So my worst fear was that he would hit somebody with his car. And so we did an episode about that. And then instead of did he do it or didn't he do it, I said, let's play with the audience's intelligence and let's just have the kid admit it out in the first scene that he did it. Now what are you going to do? And then the drama took off from there. So a lot of times I write about my worst fears, and as soon as you kind of get over one fear, another one seems to show up, I find. That's my particular life. (laughs) I have a sense that it's probably us. What are you afraid of now? Oh my gosh. I have to think. What am I afraid of now? I don't know. Give me five minutes. Come back to that one. That's an unpleasant question we're talking about. I don't mind talking about it. I just have to think about it. Okay. I have to. And so that idea of just having it happen right away and then having to deal with it, was that like say, okay, he's going to say it was his fault? Is that what you just said? Yeah. And then, okay, now we what? have to figure out, the now what is sort of like, we have to spin a story. We have to take it, find a new direction to take this in. Right. Okay. In that particular case, then I said, okay, what's the worst thing if Candace Bergen played a character named Shirley Schmidt? And I said, okay, what if she's trying the case? What's the worst thing that could happen to her in this case? Because you always want the worst thing to happen. Yeah. And I had combined it with something that we had done with our lives. We did a, our synagogue goes out and does this thing called Mega Mitzvah Day, where we do good deeds. And our family went to a an assisted living home and we visited with people with our dogs and I went to one lady's room who wouldn't come out because she didn't like the other people and we talked for a while and all she did was stare out her window but we had this lovely conversation about life and she was a professional violinist in her past life and she had Alzheimer's and six months later I'm on this TV show now I did not do that so that I could have an episode of television we just did a good deed but Six months later... Living a rich life and and going out in the world and doing things for other people is a great thing to do as a human being and as a writer. It's essential. Yeah, and you don't know how it's going to come up. Well, And six months later, I said, well, what if the only witness was an Alzheimer's patient who saw it out her window? That's why I thought of it, because we had been there. And the worst thing that could happen... That's great writing, yeah. What's the worst thing that happened is that Shirley Schmidt, Candace Bergen, has to break down this witness, this poor woman who has Alzheimer's and break her down on the witness stand. That's a horrible thing for an attorney to do, yeah. and yet it's her job. So that's so, how the ideas all kind of met. And so that happened in the writer's room, or you just kind of like... That particular idea you, was... Okay, but, and but, you just rolled it forward and sort of like, how could I bring this person into in that way? And, and how could it create conflict? What could happen that would create conflict? And what's the worst thing that could happen to somebody in that situation? For Shirley Schmidt, she has to break down this woman and do a terrible thing. Candace was very upset about it. And to have to play that. To have to play that. Yeah. And she ended up getting an award, I don't know, a Golden Globe or something for it. I can't remember what award she got for it, but she did, but it was not comfortable at first for her. Having the worst thing happen is a great device for creating conflict, creating story conflict. Are there other questions like that that you might ask? That's sort of like writer's prompt number one. (laughs) What's the worst thing? What are you afraid of? What relationships are you trying to resolve and you're unsuccessful at? That's a huge one. Relationships in your life are you trying to resolve yeah. them? And why can't you resolve them? Yeah. Sometimes I, you don't know the answer. People sort of like write a result. Like this person is in this relationship, but they won't sort of think about it in terms of what's wrong with it and how could it be fixed or what's really wrong that could be fixed. And sometimes okay. we can't see it because we're in it. So that's kind of hard. Sometimes yeah. you can see it years later, time distance. Sometimes you can see it between people you know, and you could say, okay, that's a universal. That's another question you can ask. Is this universal? I have a bunch of friends and whatever from all walks of life, and I do a lot of volunteer work just because... 
that's what we do. And sometimes you can just ask them, you know, do you go to Costco? What do you like at Costco? Do you do this? What do you do? And what you'll find is you're not literally taking one person's life. You're finding what people have in common and what the pattern is. And then you've got a universal and then you know you've got a story because everybody's feeling that way. Everybody's mad about the credit card companies. We did an episode of that at Boston Legal. Everybody was mad about the jacking up of the interest rates of credit card and the nonsense that was going on and now, of course, still does. But we were hoping to at least help or at least make everyone aware they weren't alone, which is a big thing. That's another thing. You don't want to ever feel alone. And that's what a good TV show can do. It can make you not feel alone. In some ways, you want to reach out with your antennae and just see what's out in the world and see what's important. What needs to be brought to light? What are people feeling emotionally that we can work with or use to create conflict and just spin stories that... Yeah, and just talk about it. And we're in such a strange time of transition. I think we always are, but I feel it more now. In society today, in America today, yeah, yeah. we have a very interesting, put that in italics, I guess, interesting <laughs> place, what's going on now. I don't really, I mean, the world has changed and it continues to change. And so we're, we're aware of a lot more things than we were before. But it's also, things should be easier because there are a lot of things that can be done much more easily, but things are more complicated. Right. Everything feels like it's much more complicated than it used to be. Let's talk about your half hour. We need to talk about your half hour. How did you start that one? And what, you know, uh, what? That was an idea that a friend of mine and I worked on years and years ago. We decided we wanted to do a TV show together. And then I came in and I said, I have an idea. And we worked on it for a little while. And then we put it away. And then I said, that was probably 12 years ago. And then I said, you know, I may want to take this out. And she said, you know, go for it. It was your idea originally. Just take it out. I brought it to a producer and we pitched it out. We actually pitched it out to HBO, and they bought it, and they we wrote it, or I wrote it. That's great. Congratulations. It was great, but they decided not to pick it up, and so now they're giving it back to us. So oh. now we can go sell it. They usually do that? You're a big deal, so they gave it back to you. I don't know That was why. just your arrangement, and that's cool. I don't know what happened. I think they were extremely generous, and I think they were just extremely generous, so I don't know. So I'm hoping to go out and sell that, and I think it will sell because... I usually don't talk that way, but it's a really important subject. It's a father and son story in which the father is dying. He's very ill, and he was a horrible, horrible father. And his son was a loser for a long time and got his act together and went to community college and then now is in college. But now he has to go back and help his father. And his father was this bastard who drank and hit his kid. It oh, sounds man. like a drama, right? Yeah. It's really funny. I was going to say, how is this a half it's, hour? It's really funny. You have to stay with me on it. Okay. It's very funny. Everyone just it sounds great. cracking up. But it's about forgiveness and how do you forgive somebody? And how do you forgive somebody who doesn't think they need forgiven? Big question, right? Yeah. That's a big question. So it's about that. It's very, very funny. You just have to... It's like MASH was very funny. Yeah. It was about war. So. No, I think it sounds rich and perfect for, for a half hour. It sounds great. It's not a three camera, as they say. No. <laughs> Have you but seen Nebraska? Have you seen the movie? No, Nebraska? is it good? Oh, the movie Nebraska. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I love it reminds that. me of Nebraska. I mean, you yeah, know, it reminds me yeah. of Nebraska in a very good way. Yeah, yeah. She sort of like deals with those same 
It's sort of like the father wasn't very verbal in that. Yeah. Way, you know, he was yeah. never going to forgive the son, but the son, you know, yeah. it was like one-sided, but it was interesting in that way. So this sounds like it's sort of in that realm. It sounds great. So you're going out with that, and you're going to have to put together a team, or you're going to write all of them yourself, or you see it as like open-ended, like, I could do this for years. <laughs> yeah, I don't that, know. <laughs> I don't know. How does that, how do you look at that? What do you do with that Well, idea? if somebody buys the series, you hire a few writers, and you go. You start going. And I have a bunch of stories. I I've had enough time that I have a tremendous number of stories. In terms of the time you had, does that mean you like clock different phases of writing on it, or things just bubbled up into your mind? And you just thought of ideas and just jotted them down for different stories yeah, that take place. It's, it's the same thing for you, right? You have oh, that'd be a great scene. Sometimes you think of a scene, put it in the pot, you just put it in that file of those of that show, and pretty soon you have a pretty big pile. Does that happen? Do you percolate that stuff out like while you're driving in your car, oh, or yeah. do you like? Everywhere. have to sit and say, I'm going to write now and then come up with a bunch of things. No. In fact, I don't write the same way I used to. A lot of people will sit eight hours at a desk or four hours at a desk, whatever they do. I cannot do that anymore. So I do a form of meditation and I won't do the same thing every time. I'll go either hiking or I'll work in the garden. I'm not saying I grow things. It's, I might be very clear about so that. What, what do you do in the garden if you don't I grow do a lot eat? of digging and okay. chopping and okay. physical stuff, so you, picking so you weeds. clear out and... Yeah. yeah. Okay. And amend the soil because it's nothing but clay back. And occasionally some flowers will grow, but you can't count on it. That's not yeah. the goal. <laughs> I decided. Oh, I'm sure you're being modest. I'm sure if you show me that, there's going to be some amazing no. things that are coming out of the ground. They're starting. If you nourish the ground and you water it, and it, you, eventually. And even if you weed it, even if you don't weed it, but if you weed it and clear it, there's going to be some results something. there. It's probably like the Cosby Show, Gilmore Girls, Mad Men of Gardens out there. Not quite. But we're getting there we're getting it's getting better but i found that i I made less of a goal of growing and more of oh i see i'm getting ideas here so or i'll cook or i'll clean or i'll i'll do these goofy paint you know i buy paint wait so as you're doing that stuff you say okay this is my writing time no or you don't say it you don't have a writing time well it depends if something's due then what I have if to... you have to do the pages what if you have a writing okay. partner of pages okay. Okay. then you'll sit okay we'll start you're on with a, a show no you're not on a show let's just continue with this okay how you do this yeah so you just like get up in the morning and you go out in the garden and you can't just do what you're doing so you start thinking about your ideas yeah and then no, no, I probably have a scene I have to write and there's probably one particular scene. If I'm writing a pilot or something, yeah. I have one particular scene. Okay, I'm going to think about this scene and those characters. But most of the time, I try to clear my brain, and then the ideas come. I let go of any notion that I'm going to control this thing. I think about it, and then the ideas come. How do they come normally anyways? If you're sitting at a desk for four hours, you're going to sit there for a while, and then they're going to come, right? Yeah. So why not do it outside? Okay. <laughs> and go, okay, I got that, I got that. And then go up and start typing, and then it starts feeding on itself, and then you can type the scene and allow it to be bad. Always allow it to be bad. Okay, so, like, what time of day do you go out in the garden? I don't have a time. I used to have all of this because I had kids. So when you have kids, you have to structure it, right? Because they're going to school, and you write yeah. before they go to school, or yeah. late at night, or what have you. Or you go to the office. But now your kids are, one's in college, the other is living on their own. Yeah, one's working and one's in college. Lately, the last couple of pilots I've written, I decided to do it on the road. And I drive, and I drove up the coast for one, and just stay overnight in San Luis Obispo. Because we can do that now. We can just yeah. make a reservation on our phone. And then I'll say, okay, I'll write this scene now or I get the idea in the car and I pull over and 
do some writing because you just have a laptop and then I'll check in and I'll wake up the next day and then a scene will show up but I'm kind of I, I'm less stressed about it that way because the ideas show up whether you're stressed or not I don't know if that makes sense and you'll stay on whatever it is you're supposed to be on that project that you want to get done you'll not start thinking about other projects or will that happen to you yeah yeah i think so i think i'm like i don't know i mean i'm just trying to like think i'm gonna just not go to my desk i'm gonna go do some other thing that's more emotionally regenerative Uh and then i'm gonna simultaneously focus on my writing so you do stay on task while you're driving or while you're gardening yes and you yes. say, okay, I'm going to figure this out by the time I get to the coffee shop. Probably. Is that yes. understating it? I'm, here's, like, here's, I'm like, I don't yeah. want to put it into my it. stressful framework. Of, <laughs> I, I want to write, but I'm just trying to, I just want to know how this goes so I can... Okay, so here's what I know I got. Maybe I have three weeks to write a pilot. That's how many scenes. I already have the outline because I've already cleared the outline with the studio or the network. The outline is like five pages, three mm, pages? Usually about 12 pages. 12 pages. So it's a pretty detailed outline. That's how I do it. Not everybody does it that detailed. And that's for a one hour or a half hour? That's a one hour. Okay, 12 Half hour would be a little less than that. Okay. Usually half hours, I don't know, eight or ten. There's not, usually, for some reason, the outline for an hour is only a little longer than a half hour for me. And then I go, okay, I know I want to write that scene. And half of it's already visualized because you've done the outline. So now you're working with dialogue. And that's super fun. And so say I I go, okay, well, I think I'm going to tackle this scene today. At this time during today, you do more than one scene a day, of course. And so I'm going to go out and let's say garden. I'm going to shovel for a while until I work out whatever anxiety sitting inside of me for the fact that I have something due, right? Because there's all that anxiety of performance anxiety. But if you can wear yourself out physically, then you give yeah, up, and then, and then, then the you ideas just get, show you go up. Into this coma state, and you just yes, get and then you okay. start writing. <laughs> but, but of course, I'm describing something that is the dirty little secret of all of this: is that it's all out of our control. When does an idea come to you? When you want to control it? Yeah, I'm always hoping it's going to pop in there. It's just like you know, you never know when it's going to happen. No, but you have to act like that when you're pitching to the networks and the studios. Yeah, you're yeah. like, you have full confidence yeah. that you're going to be able to write this yeah. thing, but you're not in control of these scenes. They're going to let you know when it's time to be written, which is fine, which is fine. You just have to just, and that's why a lot of people don't want to become writers because you have to let go and let yeah. the, the story help you to tell yeah. itself. There's this part of the population that will say, I could never do that. And they mean it. They, 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 it's completely foreign to them. And they, they don't even want to understand how it's done. They're just not theirs at all. And then there seems like there's the other half of the population that somehow aspires to do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, I've either played with it or thinks very much that they could do it if they had the time. So Right, right. But, okay, so in that outline phase, yeah. do you do that in the same way? If you're like breaking your pilot story or trying to sort of organize and figure out whatever you're uh, you thought of frames as yeah, a yeah. TV show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that you're going to want to structure because that's kind of like building a house a little bit. It has to have a dramatic structure. You have to be interested and it has to have twists and turns. So you have all that. Yeah. What we do is, it's this, I kind of do the same thing on the pilot as we did on Mad Men and we did on Boston Legal. And where I learned it was on Gilmore Girls. And I learned it from Dan Palladino and I carried it through those other shows to a very, very grateful room on each show because it takes away a lot of fears. And I do this when I do a pilot. Whenever you have to write a new episode of something and you're sitting there and you're looking at all those blank uh, whiteboards and you're always asking, how did we do this again? Because nobody can remember how we did the last story. You're like, how did we do that? Dan taught me 
that you know a little bit of what your next story is going to be because you've discussed it on a bigger plane and so just put on the board the scenes you want to see we already know there's like three scenes that are great in Gilmore Girls it's a conflict between Rory and her grandmother we want to see that scene and we want to see the scene where Lorelai has her engagement party something like that right and so we just put those on the board and that gives you a feeling of safety because you already have a couple of scenes Mm -hmm. so your show is started and so you relax a little Okay. And they're like, well, then how are we going to get to that scene of conflict between Rory and her grandmother? How are we going to get there? Well, I remember when this happened to a friend of mine or this happened to me or this happens all the time to people. I've seen it happen over and over again that this and this happens. And you're like, oh, that would be interesting. But how can we make it into an interesting scene? Then you're describing, like, where are they? What are they doing at that time that's original? Is there, I don't know, I think one time at Gilmore Girls, there's like, they're trying to make the world's largest pizza. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> stupid they are all the town is always entering these contests and things like that and so you're like oh well that would be an interesting backdrop to put for this argument to happen yeah. so you put the sort of these things together the entertaining part would be and this is a terrible example the world's biggest pizza with this horrible conflict that's going to happen between a grandmother and her granddaughter which could affect their relationship the rest of their lives and so that's a great two weird things to put together how can we make that happen yeah. so you can see how that it all starts to develop it's not a great example but but it's kind of what you do. Does that make sense? Yes. It's elemental. It's a good example because it's very vivid. It's very vivid. <laughs> so you know what those three major scenes are. You know what you really want to see, what you need to see. And is that sort of like, was one of those scenes going to be sort of the mirror moment for one of the characters where something happens that really changes them or that impacts them that's going to speak to the audience and speak to the, the life of the character in some larger way? Or is that something you Yeah, or the audience with? is going to say, oh my gosh, that, that happened to me. Or they're going to say, oh my God, I felt that way not in that particular way, but in another time. relate to it but it'll be entertaining how people feel when things happen to them not just things happening to them but what it makes them feel how it makes them feel and what's interesting is when you have something happen you have an event what's great about having really well-rounded characters is every character is going to feel differently about that one event just like we all do in the world we're like it's like for instance if you stubbed your toe one person who stubbed their toe it would be the end of the world because they're freaking out and it's they just they can't handle pain in the yeah. same way that other people do somebody else would be like oh it's no big deal but those are two valid points absolutely i think that that idea of family of characters and contrast between characters and so like when you're writing something are you thinking are you just sort of naturally build out a family of characters or do you consciously think how are these people And what are the differences between them? Oh, yeah. Okay, so when you're developing characters, first they're unique and yet universal, right? You know that? And I'm telling you stuff you already know as a writer. And then what are their flaws? What are their goals, hopes, and dreams? What are they most afraid of? You've you've Uh built all that in. And then the next thing you have to do is, now how are these characters going to relate? And how is that going to create story? So that's kind of an interesting And then the idea of like sort of like when thinking of characters and putting them into relationships with each other that are sort of like defined kinds of relationships versus... I'm thinking more of like emotional entanglement, couple kinds of entanglements of different kinds versus have things that simmer, creating characteristics within characters or situations for characters which are going to simmer along so people don't have that terrible fight that they should have or don't form a love relationship that, that one of them yearns for. How do you think in those terms when you're creating a show and when you're thinking about a pilot? I love that. I just love that. 
I mean, wait, I love what you said because it's so human and natural. Most people don't say what's on their mind, which is extraordinary if you think about it. You'd think yeah. people would just say what's on their minds, but one of the keys to Mad Men was that most people, they never said what was on their mind. Yeah. And when they eventually did, it usually was yelling at somebody for the wrong yeah. reason yeah. because they had to get it out. But I think you hit it on the head as just great scenes are because of that. That's another reason why I think you write drama and comedy is because most people in the world can't speak to their emotions. And so you're helping them do that. You mean so that when the characters are saying the things that they wouldn't say or they're doing the things that they can't do or that allows them to explore their psyches in some ways that they yeah. need to. When everyone says after they've had an argument with somebody, they go home and they go, well, I should have said this, this, and this. But you know, yeah. and, we, and I know that yeah. we get to do that yeah. as writers. We yeah. get to say We get what, to say those things. Because we have or to Or we, we get to never <laughs> let our characters say them. You yeah. Know? yeah, it's better if they don't say it. Yeah, we said them in that draft, but it's better if they don't say that, <laughs> you know, leaving things out and not having people know what they think. So, okay, I want to go ask you a couple of questions about Mad Men. This is like a fan question. There's always this hovering idea for the writers and for Matthew Weiner. Okay, what's going to happen to Don Draper in terms of his legal situation with the war? Was it something that was like, okay, well, should we have something more happen or was it just like closed case, never going back to it? Everything was pretty open no matter what in that show. We knew where certain characters were going, but in that particular case, that was left open. And because it was left open, we were able to explore it in the last seven, which I was so grateful for, that we found that particular case about the war. We knew that it sort of had to be addressed, but we didn't know how, but we found it along the way. But not in a plotty way. And would people come up with plot ideas and it would be like, no, we're not doing plot, we're only doing character or we're only telling a story that has to do with the intricacies of these people's personal lives? Well, there was always plot. You just didn't always recognize it. Sometimes it was slow to... Yeah. And then it would happen like, boom. Oftentimes we would ramp up and then like episode six would be like, boom, 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 boom. Yeah. That was one of the amazing things about the show is that you didn't know which stories were going to have closure in an episode. You didn't know if there's going to be a resolution or you didn't know if there's ever going to be a resolution on story and stories would just spin and then you just go away and then you come back to them. And it was just amazing the way that worked in yeah, like so that. many ways. And in terms of research, I've looked at the pilot of that show. I'm always blown away by that cigarette story that he found for that show. That was just like one of the things that drove him to write the show or was that just... I can't remember how he found that. I can't answer that because I can't remember. I know it was on his mind, but it was on everybody's mind because the insider was... That, yeah, that was, was, about was about that. that. But finding stories in advertising to mind, how did that roll for the show or for the writer's room? Well, we would do research. Everybody did a massive amount of research, and we had a researcher. Extraordinarily helpful were two advertising consultants. One was Bob Levinson, who was in advertising at that time, and he'd uh-huh. come in a couple of days, two, three days a week, and he could validate or tell you how the advertisers would react in that situation yeah. or have stories of his own from his life. And and Josh Weltman, a brilliant, brilliant man who also was an advertising consultant who he was not in the era that Bob is. He's he's our age, and but he had a, a huge, huge knowledge base of history of advertising. He also did all the created the artwork for all the ad campaigns because he's an art director. Wow. So those presentations. Oh, he did make, those. He was yeah, he was unbelievable, and he would be in the room and he would tell you what would happen or how this would go, and it was just extraordinary. And then he'd also be drawing. <laughs> so. 
And it was really neat. It, once an episode was written by the staff, would Matthew Weiner just take it to himself and work it yes. through? Yes, yes. And that he was did a just, big rewrite on everything. Would he be there during the structuring of the episode in the writer's room, or he would just sign off on an outline, or how did that work? No, he wouldn't always be in the room when we were structuring, working on story. Because there's a lot of jobs when you're running a show. You're editing, you're casting, everything. And he directed as well. So he wasn't always in the writer's room, but he definitely would come in when we were ready to pitch him the story and then he would weigh in say okay that doesn't work for me this works okay that doesn't work this doesn't work and then based on his reception we would go back and uh -huh. change the story again and then we'd eventually come up with an outline we did the outlines in the room in the writer's room and then he would read that we'd all read that and we'd all have notes we did several outlines for every episode was there a person who sort of ran the writer's room or was it an egalitarian kind of group of depend on the year it was a different yeah. person every year most of the time when I was there it was Maria Jacques Maton and Andre Jacques Maton who were a married couple uh -huh. and they ran the room most of the time and then there were other people who ran the room depending on what year it was. And then we would have a writer's assistant in the room, and they were taking notes. Say we had three stories in each episode. We would work on one story at a time, and they would, we would write every scene up on the board. They would write up the scenes in paragraphs, like we uh -huh. had on the boards. We, the boards were very detailed. It would be like, say, 11 scenes for a story. You'd cut up those paragraphs, yeah. the scenes, and then we'd clear the table and literally weave them together on the table. Everyone would just stand and look at them on the table and say, say oh, how does it fit together? Yeah, how can we switch this? Consider it. This room here, you don't have a table to do that. No, I would do it on the floor if I did. I okay, didn't, I but do you that. do it like on a spreadsheet or you just kind of keep it in your own mind when you're working on a pilot and just do it in a It's dock? kind of in my head yeah. and, and in the outline. I can imagine it pretty yeah. well. But we did it at Boston Legal, too. You did it on a table and with... Yeah, we're on the floor of my office. Okay. <laughs> I'm <always> on the floor. <laughs> All right. That's good. That's how you stay grounded. Stay grounded. Yes. Sit on the floor. Okay. <laughs> Who knew that was that simple? All right. This has been so inspiring, and you are such a wise creative, brilliant <laughs> creative. You really bring it, and there's so much good advice, and I'm just going to wake up and go out in my garden. From now on, go outside and just do other stuff and wait for it to come to me. It will. That's what I'm going to do. All right. Okay, well, thank you, Janet Leahy, for sitting with me today well, and allowing me to, to be me. on the floor in, in your office here with you. Thank, thank you. you. And that's it for now. If you would like a PDF transcript of today's show or want to check out our schedule, you can get it all and more at theprocess.ink. And of course, we're on iTunes and all those other good places. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Benedek.